It's been my experience, and, and I loop myself into this. We humans vastly misunderstand and underestimate the holiness of God. If you've spent any time at all in the book of Revelation or Ezekiel, especially Isaiah, you get an other word picture. Isaiah writes of some things that we've never seen. Isaiah chapter 6 especially, he says, whoa. And he says it this way. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe, it filled the temple. And then he begins describing the angels, and he talks about the seraphim, how they're calling out to each other, holy, 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 in antiphonal praise. And one side of heaven says, holy, 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 and the other side of heaven says, holy, 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 in response. And Isaiah said at, at the understanding of what was going on, at the sight of it, that the threshold of heaven began to tremble and quake at the voices of the angels. And that's when Isaiah says, Whoa, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I, I live among an unclean people. He's not saying just those people are unholy. He's saying, I'm a man who's unholy. I vastly misunderstand the holiness of God. When we come to the story in Numbers chapter 20 and 21, as you're going to see, I'm going to invite you to go there this morning. We understand that as much as God wanted to rescue the first generation of Israel, He loves His holiness more. It'll come jumping off the pages to you this morning as you really see the holiness of God written out here in description. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, um, go to Numbers chapter 20 and 21. If you didn't bring one with you, you'll see the verses on the screen, or maybe you have it electronically on your phone with you. If you're at home, this is a good time to turn to that. Welcome. Glad that you're joining us on the broadcast. When we left off last week, we were in Numbers 14, and, and God appeared, and He was glowing hot, like mad hot. There was the anger of the Lord, and as a result of what they had done, the people who were in the first generation of Israel, Israel they, were, they were banished to 40 years in the wilderness. And God said, anybody who's 20 years of age and older, you're not getting into the promised land. And you're going to serve out one year for every day that the spies went into the promised land and came back. And then you rejected the report, and you decided to reject me. So God has to say this to them in Numbers 14, 33. This is what we didn't get to last week. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. New Hope, when you really consider the enormity of the punishment, this text overwhelms. Every single person older than 19 years of age, every single person more than 20 and older, 
They're banished to the wilderness, and they're never going to get to see the promised land. And over the course of the 40 years, as those individuals age, those parents are going to watch their children become teenagers, and then 20-somethings, and then 30-somethings, and then 40-somethings, and in the first case, all that first generation is going to be dying out before those 19-year-olds become 59 years of age, and they will be 59 before they ever get to set foot into the promised land. And God lays the responsibility directly at the feet of a generation of adults who knew better because they had much knowledge and they failed God, they failed Him because they wouldn't believe that God would do what He said He would do. They did not trust God. Biblically, there's a theme that plays out through the story you'll see this morning. Great knowledge brings great responsibility. We have a lot of knowledge, don't we? We know a lot. We have great information available to us. These individuals had great knowledge. They had seen God perform in amazing ways as He rescued them from Egypt. And as a result of their refusing God, their refused entrance into the Promised Land. And 40 years go by. And there's not a lot of detail between chapter 40 or 14 and chapter 20. There's some, you can read it later yourself, but there's not a lot representing 40 years. But then comes chapter 20, and this really interesting thing happens in verse 1. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. Now Miriam died there and was buried there. So the wilderness of Zin is this area where Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea is at. This is a region that's in the northeast part of the Sinai Peninsula. So they find themselves right back at the front door of the Promised Land. And we're told that Miriam dies there. Uh, Miriam's been a leader in Israel, one of the big three, if you would say it that way. There's Moses, who's the superior leader, and then there's Aaron and Miriam. And they lead alongside Moses. She's been fairly silent throughout these recent chapters, but now we're told that this woman has died, and she was greatly loved by the people. And the love that Moses has for her, for Miriam, is seen really easily in the account of her leprosy back in Numbers chapter 12. She spoke inappropriately, and God afflicted her with leprosy. And as a result, Moses began pleading, God, you've got to heal, heal my sister, please. Whatever you need to do, please restore her. And after dramatically pleading, God healed Miriam of the leprosy, but you can see Moses' love for his sister. Well, whatever effect the death of Moses has, or of Miriam has on Moses, I think there's some degree in which it plays into what's going on here because there's this huge time of mourning that's going on. They mourn for her for 30 days. And after the 30 days, we come into this story that's described here. Now, mind you what her death indicates. She's been one of the leaders of Israel. Her death has happened outside the promised land. She's one of those who are 20 and older. She doesn't get a pass. She dies outside the promised land, and it serves as this larger reminder of God's judgment on the first generation. So Moses and Aaron have to look at her death and say, it's really true. Everyone, no one's going to get a pass. Everyone over 20 years of age is going to die. Even Miriam is buried in the sands of the desert. And her death marks this really significant closure on the first generation because it's only four months later and Aaron will die. 
And only a couple months after that, Moses is going to die. But he dies outside of the promised land for another reason. Keep the context. That first generation personally experienced the astounding wonders of God. Yet they are living proof that even when God does show up and evidence Himself, it's not enough. I say that because individuals have said to me throughout the course of my adult life and continue to say it today, if God would just show up and straddle over Chicago, hold up a big sign and say, here I am, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. If God would just stand over the Atlantic Ocean and just make a massive entrance, I'd believe. The children of Israel in the first generation are evidence that that's not the case because he did exactly that. God showed up. He evidenced himself, and they still rebelled against him. So it's not really true. When you arrive at Numbers chapter 20, Moses is 120 years of age, Aaron is still alive, and the nation has found themselves right back at Kadesh. They've come full circle. The land of promise is right in front of them again. And for 40 years, they've been living as nomads. Yet, even this new generations of those who were younger than 20, they haven't learned a single thing. And the first thing they do when they get to the threshold of the promised land is they begin complaining just like their parents did. Verse 2, there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke saying, if only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Now, as a nation, they've contended, they've challenged, they've fought with Moses over and over again previously, but the complaint here is quite different than the previous complaints. This is a lot more extensive. There's not only this rhetorical question of, why did you bring us up from Egypt? But they went one step further. They amp it up and say, we wish we were dead. We wish that we had died when the others perished. Well, what are they talking about, the others? They're not talking about the first generation. They're talking about a specific incident when the word perished was used in number 16. There was a large group of people in Israel who rebelled against God. And when they rebelled against God, God caused something specific to happen. Look with me on the screen at verse 31 of number 16. As he, and this is speaking of Moses, finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Whoa, that sounds very creepy, doesn't it? Okay, keep going. All Israel, verse 34, who were around them fled at their outcry for they said the earth may swallow us up. Fire also came from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. What's going on? Well, essentially, they were running their own plan. They were saying, we don't like the way things are going. We don't like what God's plan is and His strategy. We're going to do things our own way. And they rebelled against God, and God caused the earth to open up and eat them, if you will. Um, many individuals will read passages, stories like this in the Old Testament, and they will conclude, I'm so glad I never have to face the God of the Old Testament. He looks so angry. 
which causes people to react this way. I think I'm just not going to read the Old Testament. It's too uncomfortable. It's unrelatable. It, it doesn't really fit. It looks like God needs to go to therapy or something for anger. And you know what they inaccurately conclude? They conclude that because Jesus is God, God must have changed. Must be that God has done something, that He acts differently in the New Testament because Jesus isn't like that. Hold that thought as we go forward. These individuals, back into the story in Numbers 20, they're now claiming that the Lord God, the one you just sang holy, holy, holy about, that God has brought them to an evil place. Verse 4, Numbers chapter 20. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us to this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. You get a real sense of deja vu because didn't I just read that like 40 years earlier? Didn't I see that exact same thing that their parents were doing that? Well, in truth, 40 years earlier, people screamed at Moses saying, you've got to take care of us. We don't have water. We don't have food. Now, they're right. They are God's assembly. It is the Lord's assembly. And then they conclude it's Moses' fault. It's Moses' fault that he's brought us to this crisis. There's no water. There's no food. There's no fruit. There's no grain. Do you notice the list of pomegranates, figs? Everything that they cite there is exactly what the spies brought back from the promised land that you saw last week. The exact same list, except that's in the promised land. The very thing they want is there, but they don't have it where they're at. So in verse 5, they say, why did you bring us to this wretched place? It's not a place of grain or figs. Now, when you use the word wretched, the Hebrew notes that you have this morning, the Hebrew word for wretched is ra'ah. And that particular word, as you look at it, you understand the definition is wicked, this place of adversity, this evil place. To attribute to God as evil, the very place to which He has guided them, extremely dangerous. That is some very dangerous ground to tread on. Let me just say this for you, New Hope. If God has brought you to something really hard, just because it's hard doesn't make it evil. It's more accurately about the attitude. The attitude these individuals brought with them into that setting caused them to conclude, this is an evil place. No, God is actually the one that led them there. That doesn't make it evil. God's not going to lead them into evil. But they've concluded that it's evil because they don't like it, and that's their attitude. Now, Numbers chapter 20 runs like a rerun of Exodus 17. It's the same complaint, the same complaint about water. In both places, the people contended with Moses about the water. In both cases, you're about to see that Moses is told to do something about the water to bring it out of a rock. And in both cases, he's going to be instructed to use the rod, the staff, the shepherd's staff that he carries with him, the very same rod that he struck the Nile River with in the book of Exodus. Go forward, verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron came in from the presence of the assembly to the doorway of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod 
and you and your brother, Aaron, assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beast drink. So Moses and Aaron respond very directly to this new assault that's been brought on them, and they head directly to the tabernacle. They're not even going to contend with the people. They just go to God, and they fall at the entrance, and we see that they're collapsing in utter humility before God, but also in frustration before the Lord. Now, I'm sure that they are prepared at this moment for the Lord to bust out again and to show up flaring in judgment against these people. Now, just as they anticipate, God does appear, and He shows up in absolute wondrous glory. And there you can picture them laying on the ground with their face in the dirt, wondering what God is going to do next. However, as you read the story, there's no fire. There's no anger. There's no plagues. There's no thunder. There's no earthquakes, just a gentle voice telling Moses, Moses, go take care of them. Here's what I want you to do. Take your staff and bring forth water from the rock. They're very thirsty people. And God's instructions are very clear. Notice the three things that God told them to do. In verse 8, He says, I want you to take the rod, I want you to gather the people, and I want you to speak to the rock. I think this is the same rod that Moses has used in Egypt previously, some debate around that, but just go forward with me on that thought. Here God is telling him, I want you to speak to the rock and it's going to gush with water. Verse 9, so Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him, okay, so far so good. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, okay, got point two down, so far so good. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you from out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beast drank. Not so good. So far, so good. So far, so good. Not so good. Obey God in one thing, obey God in two things. Don't obey God in the third thing. So they've gathered the people together in front of this very significant rock outcropping. And it would be absolutely great if it read, Moses took the rod, he gathered the people together, and he spoke the rock, and the rock gushed forth water, and everybody lived happily ever after. But that's not what it says. Moses explodes, and he brings his fury to the table against the people, and then he takes it out on the rock. Have you ever wanted to beat a rock before? I bet you have. We all do to some degree. We want to vent our frustration and our anger against something that's inanimate so we can just beat on it. Now, to some degree, this anger has accumulated over 40 years of frustration that's been bearing down on him. All these people who are constantly rebelling against God. And to some degree, as I mentioned earlier, the, the death of his sister definitely is ushering in the end of an era, and it has to be a haunting reminder to him. This whole generation failed. An entire generation of people wiped out. And yet, he's got the new generation before him, and nothing has changed. Their children and their children's children are just as rebellious. They're, they're a bunch of whiners 
And so he yells with intense exasperation, and the tone of his voice is changing. And not only does his attitude erupt, he seizes on these words that belong to God. Shall we bring water from the rock for you? Do we have to do this? And he's taking something that belongs to God. So in rage, Moses has just rebelled against God's clear instructions. And while the water is released, God goes ahead and He provides. It's only the grace of God that does that because He wants to produce water. Even though Moses did the wrong action, God wants water to come out, but it's not done in God's intended way, but in the aftermath. After all of that is behind them, Moses has severely damaged his intimate relationship with God. One theologian I read said it this way, it was an unpardonable act of insubordination. Now, church, I want to be very cautious with what I'm about to say because we have all rebelled against God. Amen? Amen. We have. There's a reason Paul wrote, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God because we all do it. No one is perfect. No one is perfect in their lifestyle, although we strive to. We've all rebelled against God. So I want to be very, very careful with what you are about to hear because I don't want to disparage Moses. If we would say, I haven't rebelled like that, we'd actually be lying. Here's what I want you to hear. True faith, obedient faith is the correct response to God's Word. Whether you're responding correctly to God's Word of promise or you're responding correctly to God's Word of command, that's the true measure of faith. Obedient faith is the correct response to God's Word. Any other form of response is disobedience, and it's a violation of God's holiness. So we could say it this way, the opposite of faith is rebellion. Now, if you've been at New Hope any length of time, you've heard me say it this way. We'll put it on the screen for you. What you believe about God determines what you do. Now, if you've never heard that before and you need to chew on it a while, chew on it this way. What you read what you take into your life visually, what kind of screens you choose to look at online, what kind of conversations you desire to have, the people you hang out with, the kind of life you live throughout the course of the week, what you do next reveals what you believe about God. What you believe about God reveals what you do. The two go hand in hand. Moses has just revealed something about his understanding of God. Moses' failure to carry out God's very specific instructions is an act of unbelief and it's rebellion. And then his rebellion is compounded by his anger and then by beating on the rock twice. And then he claims God's power for himself, that he and God are the ones bringing the water out of the rock. Numbers 20, verse 10, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? So understand why God's about to do what He's about to do to Moses. Just as the entire nation had earlier failed God and didn't believe Him, now Moses and this entire first generation is going to be punished and they're going to be excluded from the land of promise. 
Verse 12, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. I don't care who you are or how many years you've studied the Bible, you would read that verse and say, whoa, that's harsh. Are you telling me after 40 years of crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's, checking all the boxes, going into, Israel, into Egypt and leading Israel out by the mighty power of God, that he's out at that point? Hear this, church. As much as God wants to rescue people, he loves his holiness more And God will not compromise His holiness for anyone, not even Moses. What does that mean for you and I? What does that mean for our relationship to God? I don't know where you stand in your relationship with God right now, but do not for a moment fool yourself into thinking that when it comes to heaven, that the God of wonders is just going to wink at the sin in your life and just give you a pass. You need Jesus Christ, our Lord, as your Savior. He alone can take away your sin. That's why we need Jesus. Full stop. There is no other way. But you can still look at verse 13 and verse 12 and say, wow, that was really harsh on God's part towards Moses. If you're struggling with that, don't let that verse 13 slip by you very fast. Look with me at 13. Those were the waters of Meribah. Meribah is the Hebrew name for contending with God. Those were the waters of Meribah because the sons of Israel contended with the Lord and he proved himself holy among them. What did God just say to Moses and Aaron? You did not prove me holy among them. You failed to make me holy before the sons of Israel. So verse 13 tells us God had to prove himself holy to the people of Israel. So why is Moses treated so harsh? Because great knowledge brings great responsibility. And we have great knowledge. Moses had great knowledge, first-person contact with God. Previously, when Miriam and Aaron rebelled and they wanted equal leadership with Moses, God said, first of all, you better check your heart, Miriam and Aaron, because there's nobody on earth more humble than my servant Moses. But then he goes on to say in verse 8, I have spoken with him face to face as one man speaks to another. No one has ever done that. Moses is my treasured servant. And that guy, that very one, God says, you've treated me as unholy. How did he do that? Moses failed to treat God as holy because he didn't acknowledge the very things that God had told him to do. He didn't acknowledge God's standard at all, and he lashed out against the physical emblem of God's grace, that rock, and he struck it as hard as he could, and then he struck it again, the very thing that God was going to use to bring mercy to the people. I sent uh, Derek a quote earlier, um, but I don't think they had time to get it on the screen. I I read this a few days ago from a um, Jewish historian. And this, this individual is a, a Jew himself, a rabbi, and he said it this way. Here is a direct address to, here in a direct address to his people, 
Moses ascribes miraculous powers to himself and Aaron. His act is manifestly shocking. Hold that. Fast forward with me one chapter. At the end of chapter 20, Aaron dies. Chapter 21 is ushered in, and we find this shocking story. Now, mind you, Moses is the only one left of the first generation. Verse 5, the people spoke against Moses, God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Here they go again. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Okay, now they're sounding like my kids when they were teenagers. They're going through the fridge and through the cupboards. We can't find any food here. We loathe this food. What are they saying? They don't like what's there. First they say, there's not any food here, but then they say, we really hate the stuff that you do have. Notice God's very, very aware of the things that we say even in private. What we're noticing that they're doing is they're grumbling about their food, they're yearning for Egypt, and then they step over the line. They're describing manna as this worthless, miserable food. And here's the first word they use. The Hebrew words are in your notes, but the very first word they use, this loathing, it's the word kutz. And, and they're saying, we're disgusted by that stuff. And the next word that they use, kelokokel, they're saying it's insubstantial. This particular food is absolutely repugnant to us. So if you go into the Hebrew sentence, they're, they're just like holding their nose against manna, saying, who would eat this stuff? Now, I, I got to tell you, I love my wife's chocolate chip cookies. She makes really good chocolate chip cookies. But if I had to eat it every day, morning, noon, night, for 40 years, I'd probably be like shunning it, right? Okay, so I kind of get that. The same would be true with steak. The same would be true with whatever your favorite food is. My mom was raised on oatmeal, and she wouldn't cook oatmeal for herself as an adult. She'd make it for us as kids, but she wouldn't cook it for herself. And I said, Mom, why don't you like oatmeal? And she said, Mark, I had to eat that every single day of my life till I was 14 for breakfast and lunch because they were so poor. They didn't have a lot of money. And so she said, ultimately, I was looking for holes in the wall and cracks in the floor to shove the oatmeal into because you just get so disgusted by it. But here's where they cross the line. They're disparaging the very thing that the Bible calls the bread of heaven. And God's saying, you've disparaged me. And so his response is he sends these fiery serpents and, and the bite is lethal and the venom resulted in death. And very likely what, the reason they're called fiery serpents is probably because the burning of the venom as it entered their body and began coursing through their body. And I would imagine along with this, the spike of the fangs going into people's skin, there's something distinctly different here in this story though from all the other stories you've read. Moses doesn't intercede. He's not the first one dropping to his knees, being a cheerleader for Israel, saying, God, please, you've got to rescue them. He lets them come to a conclusion. Watch the conclusion. Verse 7, so the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now notice the change. There's a change this time. They have asked for forgiveness, and like every sinner, all of the population of, hum, of humanity, of earth, they recognize their sinners, and as a result, they're asking for forgiveness. So verse 7, look at it again. So the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, Moses. Finish out verse 7. We have spoken against the Lord and you. What you're looking at, church, is what you do when you repent. There's an action of repentance going on here. And they're coming forward and saying, just like you would, God, here's what I did. I'm so sorry. I don't want to do that again. Forgive me. Will you please restore me? They're asking for restoration. They're confessing their wrong. And they're calling out saying, help us, please. God answers in the most unusual way. You notice the snakes didn't slither away, and their teeth didn't suddenly fall out. The antidote that God brings for the snake bites is, Moses, I want you to make a snake. Well, how weird is that? And Moses makes it out of copper or bronze. We're not quite sure what metal. But why that? Especially when these are the very people who have been forbidden from making any images, anything that they would find themselves bowing down to. There are few things more so intensely detested the world over as snakes. My wife says loudly amen to that one. All over the planet, people are disgusted and despise them, and they were thousands of years ago as well. But among the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, they actually worshiped snakes. They were a symbol of fertility and a symbol of protection. They, they represented life to them. So in Egypt, you find people wearing miniature snakes on their clothing like jewelry. You find Pharaoh with a cobra on his headdress and the crowns that are uncovered today from the ancient world in the Valley of the Kings. They still have cobras on them. But that explanation doesn't work here. This is Israel. Snakes are unclean to them, and it represents sin. You only have to look at Genesis 3 to understand that. This is an extraordinary culture shock to these people. So Moses is commanded to make an image of something detestable to them and to hold it up as the only means of deliverance. And only those who look to God's source of deliverance will survive the death that's coursing through their bodies at that very moment. So God demands an action of them. He says, you've got to make a visual, physical contact between yourself and that symbol that I put up on a pole. And the belief that they really believe God's Word is measured by whether or not they actually look to the thing that God said they had to look to. So it's very simple to understand. God is demanding a personal response from each and every person. Moses can't do it on their behalf. 
Moses can't cry out on behalf of the entire nation. Every single individual person personally has to say that they believe and their belief is measured by whether or not they even look up at the thing that God said, I'm going to lift up for you. Now hear me. The healing is not in the effectiveness of a metal snake. That's not what it's talking about here. The issue here is a deliberate response in faith, believing that they must do what God told them to do. Could it be rejected? Absolutely. Someone could be writhing on the ground in pain and say, no way, I'm not looking. I refuse the very thing God said. I'm not going that direction. And they would die. God says, if you want to live, you've got to look to the thing that I have provided. This is how we put a bow tie on this and bring it to a close. In the New Testament, Jesus used this exact same story as a representation of himself and what he had to do when he said, I have to be lifted up. Now, mind you, here's the context. A Pharisee, a person with great knowledge, came to Jesus at night. He snuck into the house so no one would see him. And he said to Jesus, I cannot figure these things out. How are you doing the things that you do? And Jesus responds to him by saying, Nicodemus, you know a lot, but you have to be born again. Look with me at John chapter 3 on the screen, verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? In other words, Jesus has just said, you have great knowledge, Nicodemus. You have great responsibility. You should have known better. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, here it is, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will in Him have eternal life. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And that is an extraordinary culture shock. And God expects Nicodemus to get it. How can you go to synagogue every week, Nicodemus? How can you go to church every week, America, and not understand these things and not know these things? Jesus, God the Son, has just told him, just as the people in the wilderness looked with faith so that they might live, so through faith we have to look to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And those who look to him will not perish because we all have venom coursing through our bloodstream. It's called sin. Everyone who has the venom in them, and we all do, when they look to the one that God provided, they'll have eternal life. See, it's the lesson that Moses did not get. God provided water out of the rock because he wanted to provide for the people. Graciously, he wanted to meet their needs, but far too often rebellion gets in the way. 
And that answers this question, how is it that these people are forgiven and restored and Moses is not? Why does God not give Moses another chance? Well, in the first place, great knowledge brings great responsibility. And God expected more out of him. Moses certainly knew better. He knew that God will not compromise his holiness for anyone, not even Moses. You know the end of the story. You know Moses is not out. He's out of the promised land, but he's in heaven. He shows up in the New Testament talking to Jesus. He's not out permanently, but there was a punishment for his actions towards God. So that explains why Moses isn't excused, but it seems God so easily forgave and restored those rebels. All they had to do was ask, and God restored them? Yep. Do you get it? Yep. They acknowledged their sin. They confessed their sin. They repented. And they said, we don't want to rebel against God. And God, in turn, gave them life. Moses was not quite getting it. Moses wasn't seeing grace of God in the Old Testament. Nicodemus was not quite getting it. He couldn't see the grace of God in the New Testament. So I'm going to make it really, really simple for you in case you're not getting it. It's not complicated. We have venom coursing through our body, and it's called sin. And God wants to take away the venom, so He provides the antidote. And to receive the antidote, you have to look to the one who was lifted up. That very one is the one who recognizes that if you confess and you repent and live like you actually belong to Him, you get eternal life. God says there is a measuring rod. If not, that one who rejects him, they're going to eternally die from the bite of the snake. That venom is going to take them down, and God cannot let that person into heaven because as much as he loves that one, he loves his holiness more, and he will not compromise his holiness for anyone. Amen? Amen. We get it? So we turn to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Without him, I got nothing. I'm going to pray with you right now that the reality of the words that you just heard would sink deep into your heart, especially as you interact with other people. But if by chance there's someone here today that has not dealt with that venom issue, you haven't gone to Jesus to be your Savior, I'd be honored, I'd be thrilled to talk with you after the service. I'll be down here in the front. If we haven't met yet, I'd love to talk with you as well. But come and approach someone. There'll be guys over in the prayer room as well. You can pray with someone today if you'd like to about these very issues. Right now, let's go to the Father and talk to him about what we just heard. Lord God, I thank you so much for making your word clear, plain, and applicable. And I'd be the first to say, God, that these stories seem so so difficult because one is so deep and the other one is so easy and it messes with our head. But you've taken the complicated things and you make them simple and easy enough for a child to understand. 
So I pray, Father, for those of us who have great knowledge and great understanding, and as adults, we're mature and we know what it looks like to rebel against you or walk with you. God, I pray that we would choose to walk with you. And in those times when the rebellion is obvious, that you would correct us and and gently guide us back, Father. Sometimes it's much more than a gentle guiding. We recognize that. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this auditorium right now and those who are watching, God, that you would allow them to be strong representatives of your kingdom as they take on this week. That whatever environment they find themselves in, that they would not be seen as someone who's rebelled against you, but one who stands for you and is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. And we ask for the blessing of your Son upon us. God, we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.